Welcome to the film that blew my mind, our weekly podcast all about the heart and soul of cinema. I'm Tabitha Jackson. And I'm John Cooper. Ira Sachs's work has been described as naturalistic, human, cosmopolitan, nuanced, and deeply intimate. His credits include the 2023 Passages, which was on many top 10 lists, which was very mm-hmm. exciting to see. Mm-hmm. Little Men, Keep the Lights On, Love is Strange, and 40 Shades of Blue, which won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 2005. And I understand that you've shown your work at lesser festivals, such as Cannes and Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> it's not, you're not simply a Sundance favorite. And Ira is also founding director of Queer Art, which is a nonprofit that provides support for LGBTQ plus artists. And I should say at this point, perhaps Ira's greatest achievement is to be a father of two tiny, wonderful cinephiles of whom both I and Kirsten Johnson, a previous guest on this show, are co-parents. So just as you're untangling that, audience, (laughs) let's go to the most important question of the day, which is, Ira Sachs, what is the film that blew your mind? mind. Mm. Uh, I chose a film called Taxi Zoom Klo, um, which was made in 1981 in Germany by the director Frank Riplow. And if my German serves me right. Taxi zum Klo means taxi to the toilet. Mm-hmm. All right. And it doesn't okay. mean because he has to go to the bathroom either. It means toilet meaning a place for sex in that time of, uh, I guess, any time of our century. I would also say a place of community. Oh, yes. Okay. I'm going to challenge the term sex as the only term when you talk about the toilets of of Berlin at that time. Okay. Well, it's already started. Just to make things interesting. It's already started, audience. (laughs) So for those of you who haven't participated in community in a toilet or seen (laughs) Taxi Zumklo, let's give a little synopsis. So Frank... The character in the movie and the director of the movie, Frank Riplow, who also goes by the name Peggy, draws a hard line between his professional and private lives, teaching school during the day and cruising through the gay scene of 1980s West Berlin at night. Hailed as, quote, the first masterpiece about the mainstream of male gay life by The Village Voice, Frank Riplow's semi-autobiographical film documents gay culture in the brief moment between gay liberation and before the onset of AIDS. So that's the description. Let's look at the trailer and get us in the mood. Ansonsten bin ich genauso normal, alltagsmüde, neurotisch und polymorph pervers wie meine Kollegen in der Schule. Trenne Radikalberuf und Privatleben und fiebere der Freizeit entgegen. So, Ira, I guess the first question is, why? Why this film? Um, you know, to, to me, a film like this asks and posits the possibility of what can be shown and what can be seen in cinema, and not because of the explicitness of the imagery, but because of the honesty and the transparency of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I watched it again today, I thought, in some ways, this is like, it's like a perfect version of the kind of film I'm always trying to make, which is a film that has visual beauty, it has 
ugliness. It's honest. It's authentic. It's specific, extremely specific about the culture and the people that it's depicting. It has fun. It has humor. There's a lot of humor in the film that makes it light, but it's also very serious. Mm. It's brave because it's willing to put on the screen really the truth about the lives depicted in the film. It's beautifully well shot, it's act beautifully acted, and it's beautifully lived. So for me, there is this immediacy to this kind of film, and let's say to this film, which I aspire to in my own work. Mm, that's beautifully said. And so this came out in 1981. Where, where were you and when did you first see it? Yes. I actually just saw it like about five years ago, which I think is really interesting. Wow. Um, meaning it was such a seminal work of the early queer cinema that I might have been exposed to, but I wasn't. I was like three years, to, like a lot of things, I was like three years too young. Like the movie came out in 81, which is I was 15 and it wasn't coming to Memphis. And by the time I was seeing the first queer cinema films that I was seeing, and, and, and not just queer cinema, just a certain kind of authentic cinema, let's say, or personal cinema and European cinema, all of which were very important to me, it was already in the past, and it didn't get reshown. Like it, 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 there's also, I think it's significant, and it's both too bad, but also says something. This film is not available. This right. film has disappeared. It's non-canonized, and I think yeah. that's the same reason I haven't seen it since. I mean, I didn't see it at the time, and it took me so long to see it is that because it's disappeared. The images are actually too radical, uh. and, and I think what this film also says to me is there's this idea, and people are always saying that we've, they sort of describe when they're talking about my own work, how things have changed and how it's better for, for queer life and maybe for queer cinema, and, and there, there's this concept of progress. And then I say, go back to 1981 and see what people are doing and try to show me one film that exists with that kind of, um, uh, you know, risk-taking mm. that you see in this movie. And I say... We don't always go forward. Mm, mm. That is true. That it wasn't. It wasn't made. It's not on that great list of the must sees for young gay filmmakers. It's kind of disappeared. It's hidden, which is yeah. So and sad. I've spent a lot of time this year because I I, I watched it. Um, I saw it probably five years ago. I I, I rewatched it before I made Passages, and then I actually was um, I got to program it at the Cinematheque in, in Los Angeles recently. So I saw it with an audience for the first time. And I have to say, it's like the film that that gave me, um, in a way, the most inspiration of what's possible. Hmm. And 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 I think that's what I'm always looking for when I'm making mm. movies. I want to see films that gonna raise the bar for me, that that teach me something. Mm. So how? Where were you? So it's five years ago. That surprised me. I imagined you as a fifteen-year-old seeing yeah, seeing me this. Too. But where? No. So where were you? How did you get it? And where did you see it? I saw it online. You know, I found it online and I, I tracked it down. I mean, I've gotten pretty good at tracking down movies that are unavailable. Mm. And <laughs> and I saw it, and my eyes like popped open, and like literally, I went like, "Wow!" <laughs> it reminds me of seeing movie like Salo. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Pasolini's film, certain films you're really struck by, in a way they define what is so limited about what we do see in cinema. Right. Right. Like, like this looks in some ways more like life 
And I would say not just because of gay life, but because of life itself. Like, it's really pretty and really ugly. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, from the first shot, he, like, exposes his butt. That's the, <laughs> like, that's the opening credits. Because we all have butts. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's like a way in which from the first moment he's saying... And it's interesting to think of this film in context of, of John Waters' work. Um, mm. In the ways in which it, some way, is similar, but also in other ways in which it's different. And I guess this is a, a particular kind of storytelling that seems extremely direct, personal, intimate, and of its time that I find becomes timeless when you watch mm. it again. Mm. And yeah. I'm going to say that I, I'm, I'm refusing to even think of worrying about spoiler alerts for this film as we <laughs> talk about it, yeah. because yeah. you've had plenty of time to see it out there, people. And if you haven't, you can still watch it. You can stop right now. But everything about this is a spoiler alert. It's so shot. Every scene is so fresh and real it's impossible not to talk about those aspects of it. Um, yeah. I saw this film in 1980. Hmm. I saw it, I think, before it was released in the theater. Um, my roommate, who was very, she drugged me to everything. I, haven't, I was not a, a curious, I was living in New York. I wasn't that artistically curious person. We woke up on a Sunday. She read it in the New York Times, a review of it. I think it might have been at the New York Film Festival. It did. It played at the festival, yeah. And it was afternoon. It was a Sunday afternoon. And we went downtown and got in line and made it into the film and watched it. I, I, I was shocked. I remember I went just so I could go to brunch afterwards and have cocktails. I, you know, that was my plan. <laughs> All right, I'll get up. I'll go with you. We'll, do we have to wait in line for this? It's like, and then we read the review, and the reviews were good for it. It was very uh, progressive thinking about film at the time. And the time was, it says it's between liberation and AIDS, but AIDS was right there. It was pressing on us. It wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't called AIDS then, I don't even believe, but it was, um, it was still a faraway disease for a lot of us. So the promiscuity in it didn't affect us in a way like, how could he do that? Or, you know, that there was no, there was no judgment on that at the time. It was just the mm -hmm. freshness of this guy's personality and what he was mm -hmm. willing to show on film. I found it so refreshing to watch it again. It's like he is so um, charismatic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's such a character that you just love watching. Yeah, I watched it for the first time yesterday afternoon. And that opening scene with the opening credits, Ira, that you just refer to, when he he goes to steal his neighbor's newspaper from the front door and he's naked and he inadvertently locks himself out as well. And then he goes through her apartment and goes around the balcony and gets in again. But there's something about him where there's a kind of honesty in he's setting himself up as a character as being kind of cheeky, a little bit transgressive, a little mm -hmm. bit selfish. And he goes from that scene uh, into getting ready for work. And he's his job is as a school teacher. And the juxtaposition it felt like throughout the film of the conventional modes of being up against the transgressive modes of being. Mm -hmm. They're so dangerous when put together mm -hmm. and they work so well that it's mm. kind of thrilling. I was liberated and excited 
by what he was doing as well as being shocked. So it's a kind of good mm-hmm. shock, not a, mm-hmm. ooh, that's repellent kind of shock. And I, I think we should, you know, explain for people who haven't seen the film that the shock is is really connected to a very explicit sexuality throughout yes. the film from, um, you know, blowjobs to pissing to to like group sex to a lot of stuff is and there's no transition right between <laughs> that and being a school teacher and hanging out with teachers at a at a bowling alley and and the the juxtaposition between these things is is really lifelike yes i think yes right like the things that we do that are usually in film made private are very public here and the things that are public are, are just the same. There's just this meeting of the person, the soul, the yes. individual who's going through these different experiences in the course of a day. And um, for me, that's, well, it's interesting for, for me, partially in the terms of queerness, but also just in terms of a kind of um, personal cinema and personal mm. filmmaking. I mean, I, I think in a way you can see Cassavetes in this work and you can see mm-hmm. Bergman in this work mm. and you can see... Filmmakers, uh, you know, Chantal Ackerman very much is aligned with someone who's willing to expose themselves mm. through the filmmaking process. And I guess that is why I bring it to the table here. A lot of people aren't going to be able to find it. It's not the easiest film to find, but I think it brings up really interesting questions of like, what is our, like, I watch it again in order to say, do more of that, be right. more risky, take right. more risks, don't be ashamed, don't be frightened. Yes. And share yourself through your work. And you don't have to go overboard, but take the risks you need to take to tell the story you want to tell. That's what I would hate, that people are limiting themselves from anything to tell the story they want to tell. Like that sort of self-censoring of any sort. And he doesn't self-censor anything. He doesn't. And, you know, even when we think about the stories we might wish to tell, we have still been conditioned around what is acceptable to put on screen or mm-hmm. what it's acceptable to talk about in, forget the cinema, mm-hmm. in real life. And we, we, you know, there's very early on in the film, there's a moment where he runs out of toilet paper. And so he washes himself with his hand and then he wipes himself on a towel and then he hangs it on the guest towel hook. <laughs> that is also, it's funny and it's transgressive and it's not necessarily something all of us would do, but this stuff happens. And and I think almost for me, the most revealing stuff is in how our innermost thoughts and the things that we might feel have to be kept private or we do in our own metaphorical dressing room. He brings them all together. And that is what it is to be human, to be having a sexual massage and thinking, oh my God, it's my mother's birthday. I've got to get her a present. What should I get her? (laughs) It's that stuff that's like Uh utterly relatable. Uh I think what's also interesting about the film that we haven't really spoken about is that um, for me, and particularly as I was beginning to make passages, this was a film which in terms of the kinds of imagery we were seeing was really inspiring, but also the tension of the film is really between exactly what you're describing. Mm. It's a tension between the bourgeois and the anti-bourgeois. Yes. And in a way, it's a love triangle. That's how I think of it. It's it's a man who has a partner, and then his other partner is every other man in the world. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like right. So there's yeah. a triangle here. Yes. And he's definitely not, as a filmmaker, saying that's an easy place to sit. Like, mm-hmm. he's not saying one is better than the no. other, one is painless. He's he's also describing the 
you know, the truth about some of the challenges of living a non-monogamous life, which is also kind of brave. He's not there to say, you know, there's no flag waving here. Right. And it's also the challenges of a monogamous life. Correct. He settles with burnt and he is still having this incredibly adventurous, he talks about going into this every time he walks down the street, this is Frank, every time he walks down the street, he finds adventure True. and Burnt is much more of a, oh, let's buy a farm in the country and settle down and raise chickens. The challenge of monogamy, which is when desire turns into something more habitual and mm-hmm. then is expressed in this by Burnt making him a nice dinner that he doesn't appreciate. That stuff is utterly human as well. And the, mm-hmm. the fact that he's grappling with this, and yeah, as you say, Ira, he's not judging it. He's in the middle of, mm-hmm. and I think even the ending is kind of, we don't know what's going to happen. Is he going to stay with a nice guy who will ultimately bore him? Or is he going to go and have this life of adventure on the streets, which is ultimately, as we know, it ultimately might kill him. Or is he going to get fired as a school teacher even? Because <laughs> that whole last... Well, I read today that he actually he did get fired as a school teacher before he made the film. And and so, in a way, he was very free to make this film because he was no longer I a see. public school teacher. Or he at least he was no longer a teacher. I'm not sure he was fired. Right. Actually. I like his first premise, though, is he sets up, I have these two lives and it's okay to keep them very separate. I'm a school teacher, but then I have mm-hmm. my private life and my private life, I can do whatever I want. I'm keeping that absolute freedom. And even when Berndt, comes into the picture is sort of limiting that freedom. That's what's irritating him all the way through, and he's actually acting out against some of the time. But as Tabitha pointed out, sometimes those things collide where he's he's yes. having a sexual massage and he's thinking about what he's supposed to bring <laughs> yes. his mother yes. for her birthday. So like, there's oh. these places where he's not able to compartmentalize. He really wants to compartmentalize, right? Why? Well, yeah, but too much then... sex can get boring too. You start to space out during it. You know, I, I, you I, would. I, yes, yeah. I, I don't know no. anything about that, um, but um, but but that this this thing about where the line is and why it's so kind of thrillingly dangerous in this movie for me the line was and it's quite early in the film when he actually he goes into the toilet and there's a kind of peephole and he sits down and he brings out the school books from his children so that he can grade them while this is going on so they are two separate activities he's both the the teacher doing his Mm -hmm. marking his homework and he's also the sexual adventurer in the toilet Mm -hmm. that made me feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm in a really good way because I was like hyper vigilant about what is going on here. What do, can I trust him? He said he keeps these two parts of his life completely Mm. separate, but wait, there are the kids' books in the toilet. But he did. But then the most challenging scene for me, which is an incredible scene, is where Frank brings home from school a film, which is an actual film, public information film, it's called some someone, boy's name, and his friend, the stamp collector. Right. And this film is being watched by Burnt and a visitor to their apartment, while in the next room in the kitchen, Frank is giving private tuition to a young boy. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting next mm-hmm. to each other. Ira, can you just can you talk about this scene a little and what was going on in it? 
Well, what's interesting is the film that they show, which is a black and white kind of like warning film that, that was shown actually to Frank Rippolo when he was a student. So that's where he got that film, is very disturbing. It actually comes off as the most kind of uh, uncomfortable imagery in the film because they're actually putting kids in proximity to sexual life in a way that made me very uncomfortable mm. watching it. Um, what I think is so nice about that scene is there's actually the clarity of the character Frank's relationship to the kids is is so pristine. It's so it's so uncomplicated. It's purely like student and teacher in a way that's almost it's almost old fashioned. Like there's later he kind of does things by showing up in, in the, in drag really with his kids, which sort of conflates that and confuses that a little bit. But I think what's interesting is the audience is the one that's projecting onto Frank. And yet there's such simplicity between his relationship to the student. Well, yes and no, I think, because I felt I was certainly doing some projecting and I was certainly doing some thinking like this, this appalling conflation between homosexuality and paedophilia is one that Frank, the director, takes head on by intercutting mm-hmm. these scenes of seeing the paedophile man who's invited this small child back to look at his stamps and then puts his hand in the child's crotch is intercut with a small child sitting next to Frank, the teacher, asking whether he can sit on his lap or not as a distracting Mm -hmm. method from having to do the work. (laughs) It's so dangerous. It's flirting with that and our projections as an audience for you to then really notice what's going on. And ultimately, I ultimately felt safe. But it wasn't, I don't think that the interaction is simple. Yes, no, I think you're, I think you're right. One thing I wanted to ask you, Tabitha, who's just seen the film for the first time 42 years after it's, did you find the film, um, Radical? Because for me, watching it again yesterday, I felt like it could have, it feels like it was made yesterday. Yes. Like it is so present tense. And I think that's partially because it's, it's so free. Yes. I've, I found it radical in all kinds of ways. The freedom of him, Frank Riplow, director and Frank Riplow character, I found that really compelling for the reasons I'd said before about it, showing it really showing human life. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that I'd never seen it before. I love that he uses his own name and his own friends in this film, that mixing of documentary and fiction. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. because it's set in West Berlin in 1980, it actually is a documentary of West Berlin in mm-hmm. 1980 and what was happening there and what the what the feeling was. So, I, yeah, I found it utterly radical. I had something that it's hard to explain, but it's like almost an amnesia of sorts because when I first saw it, I didn't think it was that radical. I mean, but because mm-hmm. where we were at that point was we were all feeling very empowered by our sexuality and by a radical point of view on everything. So it seemed kind of like, okay, this is, this is yeah, it's explicit, but we're going there mm-hmm. because that's where we are. Now when I watch it, it was kind of like, oh my God, was it this? Ex- like, I thought it was a different film. I don't remember it being that way. So I almost have... An amnesia and almost a nostalgia for that freedom, for that sexual mm. freedom that was in a moment, because I know it was in a moment like before AIDS, and, and I lived in that moment as a young man, so I was, you know, mm-hmm. part of it. And it's like, that's what I took away from it. It was kind of shocking to me. 
And I think that's exactly why, as a filmmaker, I try to go back to films from a different period because it's it really uh, challenges you, and mm-hmm. it reminds you that you live in a time and you live with certain boundaries that your time creates. And you know, I think you can see in passages certain scenes that actually have pushed the boundaries. And I oh, yeah. feel really grateful to Frank Riplow for kind of encouraging me to do that. Well, it's it's interesting because, Ira, you were engaged in your own battles around passages being rated. I know this one was in the UK. It was it couldn't be shown for a couple of years after it came out. And then only in the club setting, like cinema clubs, the Scala mm. and Screen on the Green, etc., but you can you just remind us with passages and the desire to rate things what your response was to that sure so passages at some point before it was released was was given an NC17 rating by the MPAA and luckily I, w- I was working with Mubi and they didn't it didn't threaten the film itself it didn't threaten the release of the film except certain theaters wouldn't play it and so i felt really lucky that i'd already made something that was as free as i knew how to make it. So I I felt like the film is a testament to that feeling of freedom. Um, That being said, I think what I wanted to talk about is, A, why does the MPAA still exist? Why do we still let this, um, you know, sort of this question, it's like we stopped asking it because it's it's been around so long that we forget that it came out of the Hays Code of the 1930s, um, which was the Catholic Church's intention to kind of control what narrative was. Not only imagery, but narrative. So Mm. in in the Hays Code, if someone does something quote-unquote bad, they have to be punished. So like it was changing everything about cinema. If you go back to the 30s cinema before that, it looks more like Taxi Zoom Clo, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) And to me... You know, that's why I feel the concept of independence is super important. And and independence is not just a kind of a stance. It's also like, what is your relationship to economy? And what is your rela- relationship to censorship in yourself mm. and, and in terms of capitalism? And so these are all really um, central questions to me on a daily basis. When you asked me, Tabitha mm. and John, to pick a film and I, I did this, I have to say, with Criterion. They asked me to pick a film once, and I, I picked uh, Chantal Ackerman's Jutu Il El, which has mm-hmm. a similar effect on me. And and I always pick a film that I know that is going to inspire me today to do better work. Oh, like right. that, like I need this film today because I'm making a new film. Right. So I need to look at this film and say, okay, come on, come on, come on. Like Like you're not a victim of your time, even if you're a part of your time. Right. Right. And this film, I know there were there were people who remarked on what it did in terms of representation of, of gay men as well, that because he was happy and was being this sexual ad- adventurer, they were just relieved that he didn't either have to go completely crazy or commit mm. suicide at the end, that 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 had become the trope. That was what was called for from the moral gods of cinema 
that 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 should happen post Hayes Code. So uh, yeah, that doesn't seem like anything Frank Riplow was involved in. <laughs> that idea, right? Like yeah. he seemed to be in a whole different world of culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a beautiful scene towards the end of the movie, which is like a drag ball and performance. And and Tabitha, you mentioned the the relationship between documentary and fiction in this mm. film. And for me, that's also really great to see because it's done so well. It's yeah. like you really can't see where the script begins and the world ends. And he's always blending it and, and in ways that, again, creates this very rich texture. Yes. He makes yeah. it look so simple, too. And, and then you realize, what has he just captured there? That must have been so hard to pull off. You know, he's. I have to say, I have this, I have this weird thing that if you ask me almost any f- time I, I come to a film that is um, really guiding light for me, it was made between the years of 78 and 82. Huh. Huh. It's all, almost all the films I go back to are, are in this very sweet spot. And I think what it was is that it was the introduction of documentary technique to fiction cinema. Oh, so wow. there was like Cinema Verite was coming out in the 60s, and they were beginning to, to bring that into fiction in a way. If you look at like early Milos Forman films, if you mm-hmm. look at... Piala films from that period, which is a kind of French realist cinema, like they were all interested in a kind of objective, subjective conversation in the images. Right. And a lot of those international films made it to America, too. It wasn't a struggle. It was kind of a, there was Mm -hmm. a a flow of them. So we saw more of a worldview, which helped, I think, I think it helped so many Mm -hmm. American independents that were just starting to grow up in film, I think it helped influence them just like it helped you. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you, I, I sense that to be the truth. I have no way of proving that, but you just see that. Oh, well, certainly you think that the, the filmmakers of early independent cinema were watching tons and tons of movies. Right. Like they were just consuming film right. in a way that, that uh, you know, from Scorsese to... Michael Romer, who, who mm-hmm. recently has come out with his his new film, which he made in 1980, <laughs> which, <laughs> which came out for the first time in 2022, wow. called Vengeance is Mine, which is a beautiful, beautiful film. Mm-hmm. One thing that I know I'm sort of changing the subject, but I'm not. I loved what a great teacher he was. Mm-hmm. Yes. In, I loved him as a teacher, because usually mm-hmm. you would put him as this very sexual guy who's sort of a fuck up in the classroom, but he was so good at that. Those students were, you know, he just came in with his Mm -hmm. own life and his little tricks to teaching. And those kids just ate it up. They loved him in the classroom, probably doing stuff he couldn't even get away with now. Just the honesty that he taught these kids and the respect for the kids' brains that you don't see that much. It's so protective. As you say that, I think, doesn't the film and how he makes film and tells the story as a filmmaker seem completely aligned with how he was as a teacher? Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. Showing everything, enjoying the curiosity, the details, the curiosity. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah, he those classes were kind of adventuresome as well with the with the children. And this film was taking us into places that we recognized. Because when he first walks in, they're so wild. I go, oh, man, this is going to be one of those, like, you know, outrageous classrooms that you can never control, you know. And then they all just, like, snap to when he walks in. I mean, I thought, well, is this how Germany works? <laughs> but 
maybe a little bit, but it wasn't. Uh, it was just that he they were so respectful of him, and they they loved him. You know, even when he showed up in drag, even like they just thought that was like the greatest thing. You know, that's right. That's right. I mean, and it's the film seems to be saying, you know. It was a relief that he wasn't a terrible teacher or he wasn't bored by it. And so he was somehow right. escaping into the adventures mm-hmm. of the right. night. It's like, no, he loves this and he mm-hmm. loves this. Mm-hmm. And he sometimes loves both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. What will society do with that? And actually, even society, it feels, wasn't made to be this. I may be taking it too far, but it wasn't made to feel like this oppressive social force. Mm-hmm. His, the, the teachers who he taught with knew that he was gay mm-hmm. or certainly alluded mm-hmm. to it. So it wasn't this They had deep, all their other craziness. They were all crazy too. I, I love that. <laughs> it's very different than Fassbender, right? Where, yeah. the, right. where the dominant, uh, you know, which is a little earlier for most part, but it's like, it doesn't have that heaviness, right. for example. Yeah, yeah. I love the scene with the woman in the waiting room where she's telling him... <laughs> He listens to everybody too. He's just like, "Oh, tell me your story," and she's telling him the whole story. If she's a sex worker and all the crazy shit she's doing, she might have a disease, and <laughs> and and the room is just sort of like reeling back from it. I thought that was a a very choice, funny thing. He was very funny. He's so appealing. I I didn't remember him being so appealing either. Maybe yeah. and sexy, right? Like yeah, he was a, very sexy. He, one thing, um, I had a conversation recently with um, my friend Miguel Arteta, who you should mm-hmm. invite onto this show, who's so mm-hmm. great to talk about film. And we were, he, he said something to me, which I'm really holding on to, which is he talked about poetry and cinema. And he said, for him, poetry is time and place. Ooh. And, and I thought of that when I was watching this movie. Yeah. Because you could talk about poetry, meaning like a poet, someone who writes words mm-hmm. in, in a poetic form, which is really an attempt to describe time and place mm. to some mm. extent. But then also in terms of cinema, what to me is so beautiful about this film is how completely accurately, poetically, it describes by its accuracy, yes. by its detail, by its specificity, it becomes poetic. Yeah. Because the time and the place exist with such density. Yes. And like passages, the sex is sexy, if that makes sense. It's it's something you want to be a part of. You're drawn into it. Hmm. And you want that kind of sex. He always had sex. Every time Frank had sex in this movie, it was very freeing and sexy and mm-hmm. you know sometimes it's like oh i wouldn't do that but i'm not that <laughs> interested in putting people's feet in my mouth but but he made it look good i mean he just made it look fun and, and well they're enjoying what they're doing. Yeah, that's it. like there's a yeah. lot of enjoyment in the sex totally. even if it's not exactly the act that, that you know there's so many different acts of some of them singing and some yeah. He pretty much covers the bases. I was trying to think, what did he leave out? It's like, okay, well, yeah. It's a primer. Yes. yes. For I mean, our first-time viewers, there is no fisting, so you can feel, <laughs> you can feel free about that. You're not going well, to have, don't get too uh, comfortable because there is a fairly uh, graphic rectal exam, which is not a sexual at all. It's just he's in the doctor's office. That but. was an amazing scene, too, that he did that. I mean, I've never seen that. 
in a film with a woman ever either, right? I haven't, I've seen a lot of films, but not that. You know what I like about how we're all describing this and how we're building and there's this, is that we're creating a hero. Yes. Mm. Right? Like Frank Mm -hmm. Ripplow is a hero. Yeah. He is. And that's partially why I say it's very meaningful that this Ooh. film has disappeared. Yes. So it's it's almost like I don't care if you can't find it, not because I don't want people to see it, but because part of what is heroic about him is that no one has noticed him. Yeah. Like yeah. he should be noticed. <laughs> you know, this guy is a hero. He absolutely should. I mean, I was trying to find out more about him, Frank Riplow, the person, and he sadly died really young of cancer. He was Mm -hmm. 52 or something ridiculous. He did go on to make more films, none of which had the critical acclaim of this one. And I think he also, he was in a Fassbinder film. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was mm-hmm. Berlin. He was in Corel. He right. was in Corel. Right. Oh, he was. Huh. He must have been like in one of the bar scenes or something right. like that. I would imagine. <laughs> I don't think he but had a big this, part. I just would have loved to have met him. Though I have to say, when I meet people like that, sometimes yeah. I want to be ten. I want to be a little bit across the room. And, I mean, it's interesting <laughs> right. because in that way, he's like Tom, he's very much like Tomas in passages. Yeah. I yes. have to say is that oh, yeah. he's not someone you necessarily want to be close to. Right. You don't necessarily want to be intimate with, but you want to spend an evening with him, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Maybe in a bathtub. I don't know. <laughs> that was very sweet. Him and he Bert seemed to be bathtub. good in a bathtub. You know, I have a crush on Burned. Burned is so cute. Oh, my God. In his Pierre Agile outfit. I mean, oh, no. he's so priceless. And I did feel for him. I mean, because you said selfish at the beginning, and Frank has a selfish streak mm-hmm. in him yeah. that... That is part of his power is that he's willing to go there with his selfish streak and not limit himself, which yes. is pure. But sometimes you go, can't you just be a little nicer to Byrne? Can't you know? No. Can't you give him a break? I mean, because we remember the last scenes with Byrne is he's he breaks into that the sheep farm to cuddle a lamb. It's just I like, know. oh my God, is <laughs> in his little Pierre at Gilles, you know sailor outfit and he's holding that lamb i mean he couldn't be cuter i mean i know i like what we've described we've described this film where there's a rectal examination (laughs) where someone breaks into a farm and cuddles with a sheep it's like i mean this is a really intriguing movie (laughs) and it's quite original those things are not in every other film that's right that's right well he goes with the pace the the pace of this movie is really good Mm. it's Mm -hmm. he doesn't get all self-involved with the art of it, he's really going for the reality of scenes, and he just shoots them in very interesting ways. I know he used that lampshade and the shadow in that lampshade on mm-hmm. his face in that one scene. It's like he's really creative. And there's sometimes where you just like that. Now what happens? He's in the hospital, and now he's out. Yeah. I think he runs away from the hospital. That's what mm-hmm. I remember it feeling. He does. Like. That's and when he, he takes the taxi to, to the, the Zoom taxi to the toilet. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this and then desperation. And they're not, they're not yeah. there for him either. One of them's locked up and one of them's not. And he has to kind of go out in the woods and the guy realizes he's wearing... Hospital he's gown. He's undressing him. He realizes he's wearing a hospital gown and kind of like, okay, I'm out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I even love that. I want to move to um, Ira just a bit more, a little more about you. But before we do, I mean, it's just worth noting this film was, I guess, was it about 12 years before... The coining, 
by B. Ruby Rich of the term mm. new queer cinema. Mm. I mean, what was different about new queer cinema than this film? I mean, what comes to mind is new queer cinema was much more engaged in metaphor. Uh, and it was also more postmodern. There's nothing postmodern about this film. As a, as a as a kind of if you think of new queer cinema as being a genre that came out in a very particular time, not yes. like just all queer cinema yeah. since Ruby Rich said that. I'm yeah. saying of a very particular time there was a lot of kind of looking at and engaging with old cinema with camp, with metaphor, mm-hmm. with allegory. There was a things like that that I feel like this film is actually more aligned as I said, with verite and Czech realism and right. and things like that. It was more European, right. I mean, to be honest. Right, right. I think that term, too, happened then. It was just about the numbers as well, that there were – it sort of reached a, a group of young filmmakers that were all mm-hmm. not th- thinking the same way but had the same sort of mindset. And that's what mm-hmm. it was about. But there's always the front runners of all these, even independent film. We talk about independent film, but nobody really talks about Cassavetes as part of the independent film movement or John Waters, really. Mm-hmm. They're blessed in some way, but they're not part of what is called, you know, the new independent mm-hmm. cinema. And mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. there's always front runners for all this. So what's yeah, interesting was- for me is who are the front runners now and what are they doing and what's going to become when there's more of them, you know, when other people get inspired yes. to make films, like from people like you, Ira, what's going to happen to mm-hmm. the young filmmakers that get inspired? What are they going to be up to? You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of fascinating for me. And Ira, you, you would you describe yourself as an independent filmmaker and what does that mean to you? Yes, I would definitely describe myself as independent, and I think part of it is just where I've gotten money from, to yeah. be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the fact that I've never made a film with a corporation mm. is very significant. So I made one, some, Married Life was the closest, which was a film I made in 2007, and it was a bigger budget film, and it was a period when independent films suddenly had a lot of money, and there were companies that were making a few films. But besides that, I've never really worked in that way. So that means... For me, the biggest thing about independence is I never have to take notes. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's a big, that's, I, I, that's I, I, it's a kind of, that is a joke, but it's a very big deal. Like someone can give me notes, but I don't have to do them. Right. And so my films have always followed my own kind of instincts. Mm. And, and that is significant. It also has meant, meant I've had to chase money in original ways. Right. Certainly. You know, that's um, because I think if people read a script, and they say, well, it needs to do this to satisfy. And I say, no, the film's going to satisfy, not mm-hmm. the script. Mm. But the, that's that's the kind of freedom that I've had. Mm. Mm. And it's not, I know, just from uh, being married to an independent filmmaker and being a co-parent with another one, it's not easy. But there is something at stake for you, which is why you persist in it. And I wondered what that is. What does it mean to be independent? Well, I think I'm also 58, so it's it's like I'm at a point where I would I couldn't turn in a different direction. It would be very hard for me right. to suddenly go to have a boss in my creative work, mm. in my artwork. So I think, and I've been rewarded for that independence, to mm-hmm. be honest. And I so that means I chase it. It also like I've been rewarded. A film like Passages is very, um, it is affirming of some because you 
you know, you read that script and you say, well, you know, what is it? Mm. And I think in this time, I actually thought the radical thing about the film is that it wasn't about anything. Right. Like that's really it was it wasn't a testament to any sort of some idea. It was really trying to be attentive to place and time, right, and, and to people, you know. Yeah. So that means I'm lucky enough to have had some people give me some money to make these things. Certainly, I'm not I'm not working independent in the sense that I have to, I do have to to raise the financing, but I've done so in a way that has kept my control of the images. And that I think for people who haven't seen your film, keep the lights on. I think particularly in relation to this, which is why it's even more interesting to me that you hadn't seen it until five years ago. How would you describe Keep the Lights On in relation to this and what they might have in common? And I really did see this after I made Keep the Lights On, but right. I had conveniently seen a film by Jacques Nulot, the French director, called Before I Forget, which was released by Strand and is a beautiful film in which Jacques Nulot, the French director, plays himself. He's an older gay man, HIV positive, has like sex with with various people, is also a writer. He lives in Paris. His best friend is a director. There's it's it's a very specific film about time and place and and this particular milieu of intellectual gay men in this city of Paris. And I thought I want to make a movie like that. Mm. I want to. Uh, I mean, literally, as soon as I walked out of the theater, I was like, "I'm going to make keep the lights on." Like, wow. I I wanted to make a film that was just about my own world, and that film allowed me to feel that that could be have value. That yes. gave me permission. I mean, I think often you're looking at other artworks and saying you have permission to do this, mm-hmm. right. and certain people. I mean, when I say for, I I want to learn something from a film, like a film like Taxi Zoom Clue, it's 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 I want to learn by example. Right. <laughs> Not be being told what to do, but yes. like there's right. an example. Yeah. I also want to just quickly shout out to Sebastian Silva, who made a film this past year called Rotting in the Sun, which I think is directly in a, a heritage of a film like Taxi Zoom Clo. And I oh. and and is an outlier in the best of ways. And he even uh, kind of looks yeah. like Frank. He's kind of he like does. A, he's a Frank character right but those are very and he also stars in the film and it's very sexual sexual. i don't think he puts himself in as many sexual situations as frank does Mm, if i remember but i think um it's it's really a film to watch for similar like oh you can do that oh you can shoot that um iris Sachs, tell me tell us a little about your kind of origin story like you mentioned memphis earlier on is that Mm -hmm. where you were Mm -hmm. born and raised I like how you ask as if you don't know, my dear co-parent. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, in 1965, and grew up there. And, you know, it was a really interesting place to grow up. My, my parents were divorced when I was young, and I ended up with a divorced father who took me to the movies all the time as a way of no, not having anything else he knew what <laughs> to do with busy. the kids. So music and rock and roll, those were both things that I really got from my father. He also moved in 1976 in a Winnebago. He moved to Park City, Utah. So, uh, and, and was there and I would go visit him every year during the Sundance festival from when I was about 14. So, uh, and 15, I was there before Robert Redford, in fact. And I do think that was the way that culture can influence, um, one's being is that I ended up knowing that there was a world of independent cinema enough so that like the first celebrity I ever saw was Seymour Cassell. Uh, 
And for me, if I thought Seymour Cassell at age 16 was a celebrity, that meant I was living in a very particular <laughs> yeah. culture, right? You were rarefied, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I was I was educated. Yes. That's really what it was. Yeah. It, but in that particular right. kind of Seymour Cassell, for those who don't know, was a star of many of John Cassavetti's work. Mm-hmm. And, and, one, and at, at a certain point, Sundance used to do retrospectives. So I saw a great Samuel Fuller retrospective mm-hmm. in the early years of Sundance. Yeah. I saw a Cassavetti's retrospective at Sundance. And these were all very informative for me. And yeah. what, for, what was cinema for you? I mean, often when we talk to artists and filmmakers, the sense of being an outsider is something that has fueled them. Did you feel like an outsider? Did cinema in some way address that? Hmm. I would actually almost say the opposite word, which is I felt very intimate with cinema. Mm. It made me feel um, close in a way that's almost, I couldn't fi- almost can't find the words to describe how close I feel to certain experiences I've had in cinema. It's, I thought about this earlier because talking about uh, Taxi Zoom Clo and when did I see it, and I know that's a question you ask, like, can you describe mm. the movies that I love best? I can't describe them because there's so much a part of me to be like describing the first time I met my aunt. Right. Like it's right. not possible. Yeah. It's yeah. like there's no beginning and there's no end. They just are part of me, and this film is, is one of those. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, let I think we should move to the quickfire round, which, okay. as you know, Ira, because you're kind enough to listen, is not particularly quick. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cooper, you go first. This is an easy one for you. You almost have maybe done it already, but what film would have been your second choice in calling on you for this task? Um, like Two things come to mind. I didn't think of a second because I just had the first and it's where I wanted Good. to go. But it would be the Ackerman film, Je Tu Il but it would also be Grease, <laughs> which is a film that means an enormous amount to me. Wow. Uh, because I, I saw it at a time where it was like, it was the sexiest, horniest, profoundest thing for me as a young gay kid to see uh. that movie and have this experience in the cinema that was like, Almost orgasmic, I would have mm-hmm. to say. Like, and I immediately wanted to go back, as people do to <laughs> at that age, to sexual experiences. I wanted to go back to Greece. <laughs> there are worse things that you can do than kiss a boy or two, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yes. I genuinely never knew that about you in Greece. That's fantastic. Ah, okay, I will lower the tone, or maybe raise it. Who knows? Uh, what is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you in a cinema hmm. i remember it's funny because i i just remember being at sundance at tabitha can affirm that i'm a nail biter <laughs> and in movie theaters i'm a terrible nail biter i get lost and i'm just like going at it and i was at a, a documentary feature at the sundance film festival at the holiday village cinema and i'm sitting next to a woman who is in a fur coat, and we're watching some rare documentary. And in the middle of the film, I guess I had just gone at it, and she turns to me and she said, my God, give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) And I've never quite gotten over it. (laughs) Like the shame, the humiliation, the being seen in a way that I wasn't ready to be seen. It was a very... uh, yeah, traumatic experience. I am I am the same and my partner can hear me 
touch my nails from a mile away. It's like, <laughs> it's just like, I, I swear to God, sometimes I have to put on gloves to watch a movie. Cause it's just like, I have to say it's I the can't. thing I love. It's one of the things I love most about my husband, Boris, is that he doesn't mind that I bite my nails. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that one. Um, okay. Last one, Cooper. What is your advice for young filmmakers? Oh, watch ones. movies. Watch oh, movies. Yeah. Watch movies. Watch mm. more movies and more movies. It's like the answers are in these moments in which you're totally exposed to an experience that you can't describe unless you live it. And living it is actually watching and seeing mm. and experiencing things. And if you stop doing that, then you're just like replicating something. But I think staying engaged with the art form is to me uh, what keeps me feeling very, very young. Nice. Oh, yeah. That was such an elegant dismount from this episode (laughs) of the film that blew my mind. We've been talking about Taxi Zunklo with Ira Sachs, directed by Frank Riplow. Released, if you were lucky, in 1980, 81, or if you were British, somewhere around 1983, (laughs) 84. It is worth tracking down by any means you can. There's a DVD, a Brit- I think it was British DVD by um, Peccadillo released one with special features. But so, I don't know, there's maybe some hope in finding it out there. Well, my hope is this conversation will lead the criterions and the movies and the, you know, to make this film visible. Again. Right, right. Yes. That'd be beautiful. I think I'm going to go hug a lamb right now. Cuddle, <laughs> cuddle a lamb. I'm going to the toilet. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you both. This was a really pleasurable. <laughs> I really appreciate it. If you'd like to share the film that blew your mind, send us an email to stories at thefilmthatblewmymind.com. The Film That Blew My Mind is hosted by me, John Cooper. And me, Tabitha Jackson. Our executive producer is Jessica Buzzard. The show is produced by Goat Rodeo, and to find more of their work, go to GoatRodeoDC.com. Executive producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. Creative producers are Max Johnston, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Rebecca Seidel, and Jay Venables. Mixing and engineering by Rebecca Seidel. Intro music from Wayne Jones. Marketing and publicity by Stephen Raphael at Required Viewing. Graphics by Lee Fenvis. Special thanks to Trevor Groth, Kirsten Chalker, John Nine, and especially Christine Buzzard. Also to all our friends and family who put up with us and our crazy projects. Aww. If you like this episode, why don't you subscribe to stay up to date on new ones? And maybe leave us a rating and a review. Oh, and if you have any left... Tell your friends. <laughs>